good morning. I am so glad to see you this morning. I'm glad that you're here. Um, if I only had three weeks in order to teach my kids um, everything that they were going to need to know. So I would then, if I had three weeks, I would have to teach them everything. I mean, they would have to know what it was going to, what they were going to need in order to survive in life. And so if that were the case, I would have a whole lot to do. I would uh, have a whole lot I needed them to know in that tiny three-week period, because without it, if you don't have what you need, then that means all the other stuff that comes later, all the other stuff that, that is down the road, you won't have what you need in order to make that make sense. So I think maybe we can all agree that in those three weeks, I would need to teach them some very foundational, very basic things to get them ready. And basically, that's kind of what's happening this season for us. It's back to school season. Schools, uh, uh, Glen Rose starts tomorrow. Malvern and some others start next week. So it's here. This time is here. And that's basically what is going on with the teachers right now. They are in the process, once the kids get back to school, of laying these foundations so that our students are ready for the next year and then the next year. And then one day after they graduate, they're ready, we hope, for life, that we've got them ready, that we've laid those foundations for them. And so that's kind of how it works. So when I started school, this is very similar to the book that I started with when I was learning how to read um, uh, back when we actually used books. This was an early, early reader. Um, lots of, a whole lot of stories, pictures about a little guy named Dick, a little, his, his and sister, I can't remember, named Jane, um, their dog named Spot, and this was my beginning reader right here. This, or it was like this, anyway. Um, I loved it. In fact, I went searching for this book, Vanessa and I did this weekend, and uh, finally found it. So here's this. Now, these are my two books. When I was in AP English um, in this was my sophomore year book. This one is uh, American Literature. Oh, I absolutely loved this class. It was amazing. This was my junior year AP book. This was uh, British Literature. And so here's the thing. Had I not done this, I, I would never get to this. Had I not done this, I never would have gotten to these. Had I not learned this, I never would have gotten to the place where I could enjoy what I loved so much about these. So this was foundational. And you know, we also know that that, that works with math too, right? If we don't get those early math things right in class, then once they start adding letters to it, <laughs> and once numbers become letters, I, then there's no way we're going to be able to catch up. So all of those foundational things are so very important because they get us ready for what's coming next. If I miss this, I'll never get this. If I miss this, I'll never get this. And that's kind of how it works. Now, we said last week, our spiritual life is very much like that. Our spiritual life is similar to that. We also have some foundational things that need to be present in order for us to get some things that are on down the road that are a little bit later. So we need those things in order for us to understand 
the later things. So spiritually speaking, if we miss the foundation, if we miss some of those foundational items, then what comes next may not make sense. Or worst case scenario, what comes next may not even matter if we miss some of this. Now, we said last week, Paul was a church starter. It means he went from major city to major city, and he would start a church where there was no church. And that means that it was all new believers. They had not been following Jesus. They were brand new believers. They were brand new churches. They were just beginning their journey with Jesus. And here's what that means. It means everything that Paul taught them was very foundational. It was very important. He had to lay those foundations. Now, his basic church starting strategy seemed to be always the same. He would go into an area where there was a, a, a city, and he would explain the good news about how God put on the flesh of man. His name was Jesus. He came to live among us, and he came to die for our sins, and he died for the sins of the world. Three days later, he walked out of the tomb alive, and Paul would explain because of that, that is how it's possible for us to give our lives over, the control of our lives over to Jesus, to his care and to his control. And that's what, how Jesus takes us and places us into his kingdom forever. And that's what Paul would do. He would go from town to town and he would do that. He would gather people together and all the people that would begin to trust in the light. That was our series last, uh, last month. They would trust in the light who's Jesus. They would all be new followers. He would gather them together. And in fact, um, he, he would, uh, they would call that a gathering. Uh, later, it came to be known as a church. But in the first century, it was called a gathering. And he would pull them together. Uh, they would gather up all these new believers. And today, we call that a church. And these new Christ followers, they would become, they would get baptized. Uh, another thing I'm so excited, uh, Scott mentioned our baptism coming up, uh, baptisms coming up uh, next Sunday afternoon, and please, everybody is invited. If you don't know where it is, we'll make sure you do, and it's going to be a potluck that starts at 1.30, so that gives us time to go home and get some vittles and bring them with us. Um, yes, I used to watch the Clampets, and so you get to grab all that, bring it with you to the potluck, and then we'll do the potluck, and then we'll do baptisms after that. So we'll get you directions. Make sure you know how to get there next week. So very exciting. But so they would get baptized, and then they would become part of this local gathering of believers that we call today a church. And Paul would teach them the fundamentals, everything they needed to know for the foundation so that they could build their lives upon it as they began to follow Jesus. Now, Paul never knew how long he was going to be in one city. He never knew. Um, he didn't know if it was going to be a short stay or a long stay. Um, so he had to teach them as much as possible while he was there. So he went to work in a furious manner. Now, in the town that we're talking about in this series, Thessalonica, Paul was only there three weeks. That's it, three weeks. And after about three weeks, he was run out of town by people who hated Jesus. And so he had to leave this brand new church filled with brand new believers in Jesus, with brand new 
pastors and teachers in the church that had only been following Jesus for three weeks and he had to leave them. Wow. Can you imagine he was worried about this church and worried about their survival? He certainly was. So he did. They worked as fast as they could. They didn't know they were going to only be there three weeks, so they started laying this foundation. They were pushed out. They did have to leave. And three months later, so now these believers are almost, and the oldest one is almost following Jesus for now about four months. Paul sends a letter. He sits down. He's in Corinth. He writes a letter to this church in Thessalonica, and he's trying to fill in some gaps because he left in a hurry, and he wants to make sure they have this important stuff down and that they're able to live it. Now, last week, we talked about chapters 1, 2, and 3. Today, we're going to see where Paul takes Thessalonica and as we have seen that with our series, he's taking them back to school, Jesus style. And today we're starting with chapter four. And let's jump into the word. And here's where we go. Chapter four, Paul is writing to these almost four-month-old followers of Jesus. He says, finally, your brothers and sisters. Now, this is not finally like um, uh, the summary at an end of a chapter. This is finally, he's saying, finally, now that we've got the introductions out of the way, finally, I'm going to get on to some things, some really important things. He says, uh, finally, we urge you. In other words, he's in his writing. He might as well say, guys, ladies, listen, this is so important. We urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, a lot of times we would just kind of skip by that because that sounds like a normal Paul greeting. Remember, they've only been following Jesus for just about four months at the most. Paul is reminding them with this phrase, that in the name of the Lord Jesus, he's reminding them, this information does not come from me. I've been sent by Jesus as an apostle. In other words, this is in the name of the Lord Jesus, not my name, not my authority, not my information, not my words, not my content. This is his. He's reminding this baby church. This is his. In the name of the Lord Jesus, he goes on, uh, we urge you, he says, to live in a way that pleases God. All right. We're to something really important very fast. So students, y'all pay very close attention. All right, students, right here on the front, y'all listen to what we're getting ready to say. All right, students, folks who are getting ready to go to the military, every, uh, you, you, our, our young folks, listen, this is so important. If there's one thing that perhaps you could build the rest of your life on, every decision that you make, hey guys, every decision you make in school, every facial expression, you have towards a parent or maybe a teacher. Everything that comes out of your mouth, everything you do. Here's the question. Jacob's going to put it on the screen for us. Will this please God? If the answer is yes, do it. 
If the answer is no, don't do it. If there's one thing that perhaps we could all build our lives upon, parents, with your own children, the one thing that will always rule, that you can always build your life upon, in your interaction with your child, if this will please God, do it. If it doesn't, don't. And you know what that will do? That will be teaching your children exactly what we're talking about today, exactly what Paul was teaching them. Parents, grandparents, friends, neighbors, relatives, aunts, and uncles, while you're at work, if it pleases God, do it. If it doesn't, then don't. Is it possible that with that one phrase that Paul gives the Thessalonica church, that they might have enough to build the rest of their lives upon? And Paul is reminding them, live in a way that pleases God. Now, last week we said this. Last week we began talking about this foundation that Paul was laying. And last week, do you remember? He said to live in such a way that you remember, and this is going to be on the screen too, that you remember that Jesus is coming again. All right? Paul said, Thessalonians, I know you've only been following Jesus for four months. But this was something he told them during that first three weeks. He said, live your lives in such a way that you are anticipating that Jesus is coming again. And he's saying he could come again any day. It's almost as if we were to remember that. If we're remembering that, then I believe the decisions that we make that the interactions that we have with other people, that the road rage that we have on our way to work or on our way to drop the kids off at school, the road rage, the interactions that we have with other people, I believe that we will live differently because we're anticipating the return of Christ. And here's what Paul said last week. It's living in a way where we're anticipating the return of Christ, and it's as if... God watches our reactions and interactions with other people, and it's as if it gives him the opportunity to nod in agreement, saying, yes, that was a good one. That's the way I would have done it. I, that's, the, that's the facial expression I would have given them. That's the word I would have said. That's the interaction I would have had. That is worthy of my kingdom. That's worthy of my glory. You got it. Wow. That's what Paul is reminding them. He did that, and we talked about that last week. So he's saying to them now, chapter 4, this is not the next day. They're reading all of this at once. He's saying, live in a way that pleases God as, here's the verse, as 
we have taught you. Live, and that, that means, that means he taught them this in the first three weeks. That was foundational information. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, I'm repeating some information I've already given you. I'm reminding you some things I've already said, just a few in that first few weeks of following Jesus. And then he encourages them. He says, you live this way already. Now, when we see this, let me see where we are. You live this way already. When we see that, he's not saying every one of you to the church in Thessalonica are living this way already. When he's saying this, he is saying, some of you, some of you are living this way already. Some of you. Many may have been. Because of the way Paul writes this, we understand that some of them also were not living this way. And so while it's encouraging, it's also he's beginning to correct them. And we're going to see that as we go. He's going to do a little more of this. And then he says, and we encourage you to do so even more. So this time when he says we encourage you to do so even more, he is really singling out the ones who have not been living this way, who have not included that, paid attention to that as part of their foundation and what he's teaching them. He definitely has some work to do as he's talking with them and trying to encourage them. He's saying, some of you are living. And I find this interesting. You know, for us, we think foundational things probably include like, how do we have more faith? We worry about that. How do we have more faith? Uh, How can I know for sure that I'm really going to go to heaven when I die? And just a heads up, we're going to talk about that in October. Ooh, don't miss October. It's going to be good. I think there's going to be a lot of surprise people in October. It's going to be good, really good. How do I know that I'm going to be in heaven? We see those as foundational. Uh, 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 What is the order of the end times? How is all that going to play out? We, We think those are foundational things. Not Paul. No. Paul is focusing on what they're doing. He's focusing on the way they are living. You see, according to Paul, which we have to say according to Jesus, according to God's spirit, what happens after we make a decision to entrust our lives over to the care and the control of Jesus, what happens next Paul is saying something begins to change in the way we live and some of the decisions that we make. And so Paul was not only taught directly by Jesus. We learn this in the book of Galatians. He was not only taught directly by Jesus, but Paul was also in an ongoing way taught 
by God's Spirit. You see, God's Spirit had already taught the early church through James, who's the brother of Jesus. They taught him, this will be on the screen, that real faith is always followed by real actions. Real faith is always followed by real actions. In other words, the things we do begin to conform to the faith that we have. And then that is pleasing to God. So Paul goes on, verse 2. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So once again, once again, we have Paul saying, listen, guys, remember what I'm teaching you is not mine. It's from Jesus. What I'm teaching you is not my authority. It's his. These are not my words. They're his. This is from him. This is, I'm, I'm just delivering a message. I'm just the messenger. This is not my message. And this may be important because where Paul is going next, he's getting ready to step on some toes. And so maybe he just wants to remind them, by the way, this is not me. This is God's information. Now, he's getting ready to give them two very important uh, categories of information, okay? Now, the first one we're going to come to is a matter of morality. The very first thing is a matter of morality. We're going to talk about that. Because what... Paul is being ready to teach them about God's kingdom is very different than the lives they've been living in this Greco-Roman world. Because remember, we said last week, most of this church were not Jewish people. Most of them were Romans. So this is very, uh, what he's getting ready to say is not their custom. It's not their norm. And what God might say is immoral, the Romans in this scenario would say, oh, that's just normal living. That's just everyday life for us. That's a, we don't have a problem with that. And here's the second area that he's going to address. It's going to be an area of character and integrity. All right? Character and integrity. So, as we approach these two things this morning, I just want to let you know right off the bat, there is going to be some tension in the room because even today, 2,000 years after this letter was written, there was tension then, and 2,000 years later, right now today, there will still be tension today because what Paul is talking about is God's kingdom. He's not talking about the cultural norms, the cultural kingdom, our earthly kingdom. And Paul reminds them, hey, by the way, this is not me. This is God's kingdom, his information. I'm bringing this to you as an apostle. We would call that today apostolic authority, meaning straight from Jesus via Paul. He's reminding them God is the source of this message. These are not my views. These are not my, my things. These are God's things. 
Um, this was important enough for him to address it 2,000 years ago. And, and very interestingly enough, it's important for us to address it today. The next four verses really should be read as one cohesive uh, uh, thought. So let's go to those now. Here we go. Verse three, Paul says, God's will is for you to be holy. Now that's big. That's a big statement. If you have ever, ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? What does God want for my life? What does he have for me? Well, there's one thing that is his will and his desire for absolutely every person he's ever created, and it's that. That is the top shelf, the first priority for you, for God. He wants you to be holy. It is always his priority for you. It's always his will for you, and it forever will be. That will never change for you to be holy. Holiness is God's goal for your life. Holiness is actually, if you want to look at it this way, it's what God requires for your life. God requires you to be holy. Holiness is his standard. It'll never change. It is not the standard of what does what does uh, the Supreme Court vote on this? That's not God's standard. It's not what laws do uh, do the state and the U.S. legislature put into place. That's not God's standard. It's not what does uh, what's what's uh, what's allowed in the city, what's allowed at school, what's allowed uh, in the neighborhood, what's allowed at home, what, what, what do my parents say, what, none of the, what, how was I raised, what do I think, what, what do I think the standard should be, or what does someone else think, it, it, none of those things. God sets his own standard, and he makes his own decision, and his decision is not always what culture, well, it, it's rarely what culture says it is. So as a Christ follower, this whole process of us attaining God's will for our life, for us to be holy, it happens very slowly. For me, it happens, oh, 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 so slowly. So, so very slowly. You may be faster than me. I don't know. But I know for me, it happens very slowly, and it's progressive. It happens over my lifetime, one day at a time, moment by moment, over the rest of my life. It's a progressive. Uh, the Bible talks about being sanctified. The Bible talks about being consecrated. It talks about us being loyal to God and the service of God. And it's over the course of our whole lives. So, okay, God's will is for you to be holy. And right there, Paul could have written absolutely whatever he wanted at that point. God's will is for you to be holy. And as I'm standing in this spot today, teaching from this passage, I really wish that Paul would have written something else next. I really do. I really he would have said something else next that would be so much easier to teach about, so much easier, so much less tension 
because what he's getting ready to say brought tension to the Thessalonian new believers, and it still brings tension to us today because it's not popular and it's not culturally relevant. It's not culturally acceptable. In fact, if you adhere to what Paul is getting ready to say next, you will at some time be laughed at. You will at some point be shunned because it's not popular at all. And he could have gone any number of directions. But here's where he went. He said, be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. That gummit, Paul, you and all those Christians always talking about sex. And I'm just here to say, you don't have to agree with Paul, but you can't deny that in Paul's letters, and here, since he brought it up, and this is the first letter he wrote, we find him talking about this a lot. This was significant because apparently, while it's not a big deal for their culture and it's not a big deal for our culture, it's a big deal for Jesus. It's a big deal for him. Now remember, this is not new instruction. What Paul is telling them here, he has already told them during that three weeks that he was with them. He's already taught this to them. Because Paul knew the Roman cultural norm was very much the opposite of what is God's standard. I mean, in the Greco-Roman world, they would say that sexual activity outside of one's marriage was not just okay, but it was actually expected. It was the norm. I mean, it was as common as going to a restaurant for us. It was as common as uh, back in the 90s of people giving someone a high five. I don't know what they give them now. <laughs> it was common. It was normal. It was every day. And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians, he's reminding them of something that was very uh, much part of the Jewish culture and now it was part of the new Christian living, but this was very foreign to them. It was actually foreign in all the writing. Any writing, any, any literature from that era, nobody was talking about living holy, except for the Jews, and except now for the Christ followers. There was no known literature around in the first century that was saying you should live a holy life. And certainly not to this standard. So this very new little church 
was beginning to exhibit some transformational behavior that was reflecting not the culture, but it was reflecting God's own character. Paul says, be holy. And then he says in verse 4, then each one of you will control his own body. Think of him saying as, you will be in control of every part body and live in holiness and honor. Verse 5, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his, and his ways. And just to remind you, most of this church, most of them were pagans just four months ago. And as they were living that way, it was not wrong for them according to their culture. According to their culture, it was okay, it was right, it was normal. And I think it's important for me to mention the tone of this letter and the word choice that Paul is using. This is not like uh, a sweaty preacher just just pointing at people and just hammering away at people and just judging and pointing. It, this is not the attitude that Paul is presenting this with. The word choice and the way that he is crafting these sentences, it's as if he is coming to them as a very close, loving, dear friend. Not as someone who's coming in heavy and hard like this. He's bringing this information, not with a picket sign, not with a bullhorn. He's coming to them like this, with love and kindness and patience. He's writing as loving, kind, friend who has the authority of an apostle because this is not his message this is Jesus it's his message and he knows that the Thessalonians their culture has raised them to believe that 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 was all okay and that was not just okay it was expected and it was accepted Their culture said, you can do all of those things. It doesn't matter outside of your marriage and with whomever you want, it doesn't matter. And Paul is lovingly reminding them, our ways are not God's ways. What we have been taught is not God's ways, not God's standards. And he's making a contrast. We're living in this standard of the world. And he says, but that's not God's kingdom. That's not what his world is like. And his world is here on this earth now as well. That's not his world. What's the implication? So it was culturally okay for them to do this. Why was it culturally okay? It wasn't okay according to God, but their culture said yes, and it's because they did not know God. 
And so Paul is saying to this brand new church, all of these great, great big things. And for us, it still stings today. It stings us today. It still connects with us today. It still hits like it did then. It hits like that today. And I think what Paul is emphasizing, because many people were being transformed, he's emphasizing to know God always results in living differently. And in this case, Paul chooses to focus on thoughts and sexual actions, and he says they are strictly to be within the bounds of your marriage as God defines marriage. And he said, when we do that, then God nods with approval. When we do that, God is saying that belongs in my kingdom. Now, here's one of the problems we face because we have a similar situation today where what, what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, we need to hear today. So part of this, they struggled with and we struggle with, but there's an aspect of this that they didn't struggle with, but we struggle with today. And here it is. It's a big one. The context for us today in understanding this is this question. So who can be married according to God? Who can be married according to God? And I told you, I told you before we started this, I wish that Paul didn't write this behind what he did in Thessalonians because we wouldn't have to cover it today. But he wrote it as an apostle with apostolic authority, which means it came from God, which means we've got to cover it today. And so that's why I mentioned today we have a problem. We've got to understand the problem they had. We've got to understand it today with a little bit of a difference because we have to understand who can be married today. And God's definitions of any of this are not motivated by politics. They're not motivated by the culture they simply are his because they reflect his character. And God does happen to give us the answer, the definition, whether we choose to follow it or not, he still gives it to us. And what we've learned as we have studied scripture, we've learned this that God's definition of marriage is so specific, it actually goes to the molecular level. Wow. The chromosome level, every single cell in your body has been stamped. Every cell. And you either have XY chromosomes, which makes you created by God as a male, or you have XX chromosomes, which makes you created by God as a female. Those are not my definitions. 
I'm I'm, I'm gonna go with Paul here. This is not me. Culture's norm and culture's way and culture's plan rarely is the same as God's plan. Now, here's where I'm going to hit pause because we did nearly a full series on this topic. In 2021, um, in 2021, um, in, uh, let's see if I wrote down the month. Uh, in October of 2021, we did a series called Bad to the Bone, and we covered a lot of this information, okay? So I'm going to point you now, because we don't have time to teach through this topic, I'm going to point you to that series, 2021, October, Bad to the Bone, to help answer what I just presented to you as God's definition of marriage. But I need you to remember, as Paul is talking through this letter to the Thessalonians, he is not talking like an angry, rude, mean preacher. He's addressing them like a loving father, like a loving mentor. Because he wants to make sure these new followers of Jesus understand God's design, even for human sexuality. And for the follower of Jesus, which I claim to be, and which many of you are as well, God demands holiness from his people. Because holiness comes directly from God's character. It doesn't come from what I think. It doesn't come from my opinion about the topic at all. It comes from God's character. But I absolutely want to keep reminding you, remember Paul's tone. He's speaking to friends. Even those who are not following, he's speaking to them with kindness, with love. And at the same time, with love, he's being very truthful. So here's what Paul says next. Verse 6, never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. Before this time, it was not a violation for them. Their marriages were open. And then he goes on to say, for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. So again, Paul is saying, this is not new information. I'm reminding you. And then he says, with, I'm, I'm reminding you with some urgency. I'm reminding you as if to say, if you go this direction, you're about to step off of a cliff. So I'm warning you, please, please don't take that step. And at the same time, he's being clear. He's also saying this, and by the way, Jesus avenges such choices, such 
sin. And we don't have any more information about that. It would do us no good to speculate on what he means by that phrase. But he just throws it in. By the way, Jesus takes it seriously, and he takes care of those matters. And Paul is saying very clearly, this is a serious matter to Jesus. And Paul is pleading with them, knowing they've only, he only had three weeks to get all this information to them, which is completely opposite of the lives they had been living. Verse 7, God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. You see, God's calling them to become a part of his kingdom. He's placing them into his kingdom. He's saying the lives you were living previously don't reflect the character of God. They reflected the earthly values, earthly culture. Verse 8, therefore, anyone who refuses, so now he's speaking still to the church, but now he's, he's directly speaking in this moment to people who have a few or some number who are refusing to do it. He said, those who refuse to live by these rules um, is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He's saying, you're not rejecting me. You're, you're rejecting God. The very God who has given us a gift of God's spirit. Paul goes on to make the argument that it's only through God's spirit that we can even make these choices. We can't, if it's left up to us, hey, we're going to go with the open marriage. If it's left up with us, we're going to go with anything goes that we want or that we choose. But Paul says, once he gives you his spirit, he begins the process of changing. And that's why so many of them in just three weeks, their lives began to transform. And the key to that, they had God's spirit. Wow. Real talk. The only reason we have any hope of change ever at all in our lives is because of God's spirit, which Paul says is living inside of us. It is the only source we have of God's holiness, the only help we have of change and to live how God wants us to live. It doesn't come from me. Every time I can give some willpower, we're going to talk about this in September, I think. I can give it some willpower, and I can make a, some course corrections, but they will never last the long haul, ever. Only through God's Spirit. Only. And God's Spirit does not guarantee perfection. Nope, doesn't guarantee it. It's much worse than that. <laughs> the fact that he gives us his spirit, it means we are left with no argument to say, oh, well, I'm just human. You know, at the church in Malvern and Stuttgart Harvest Church, we say we're the perfect place for imperfect people, but please make no mistake. We're not saying, oh, well, we're just human. Anything goes. God's going to love us anyway. Oh, he loves us. 
but we have no excuse. This is the perfect place for imperfect people because we all are, but he is in the process through his spirit of changing us one day at a time, moment by moment, because I promise you, I'm not the same person I was three months ago. That's what he has for you too. You probably aren't either. Heads up, in October, we're going to answer the question, but what if you are? What if you're not changing? We're going to talk about that in October. Oh, it's going to be good. Jacob's going to put this on the screen for you. Here's what Paul is saying. For Paul, the Spirit is not only the key to becoming believers, he talked about that in verse 6, but it's the power for truly Christian behavior. None of that comes from me. None of that comes from me. Do you want to know what God thinks of me? Yes, he loves me, but do you know what he thinks of me? That there is nothing good in Harley. And do you know why he thinks that? Because it's true. I have proven that over and over again. I am so far off track. I'm sorry. I, nobody had to teach me how to be bad. I was good at it. How many of you were good at being bad? Yeah, me too. I didn't have to take a lesson. I didn't have to learn from my parents. I didn't have to learn from, I, I, I was just good at it. And God knows it. If there is anything, and oh, Lord Jesus, please, may there be more. If there is anything at all in my life that even resembles something that might be good, it's God's spirit. It is not me. You know, the world we live in today is looking more and more and more like the culture that Paul was speaking to, to the Thessalonians. And Paul is now bringing holiness and sexual together where they belong. And for most of those people, they had never heard that in their lives. Now, you can take a deep breath because we're done talking about that. Very quickly, we're going to move on to that next topic, that next category, and it's that category of character and integrity, and I'm going to try to go through this very quickly. But remember, he's including this as their foundation, verse 9. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, all right? And you can read that as, we don't need to write to most of you. He's saying, many of you are doing a great job. 
And the word that Paul chooses to use here, Philadelphia, is really a, a love that's expressed between family members and for the very first time in all of Christian literature and here in the Bible, the very first time we see Paul applying that term, not to family family, but to his family of believers. Very first time he does that. And he says, uh, of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Again, it's coming from his spirit, okay? Most of them were loving each other. Most of them were. But some of them, some of them were not. So Paul addresses them, verse 10. Indeed, you already show your love for all believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, here we go. He's addressing them now. Dear brothers and sisters, we urge you, in other words, some of you, to love them even more. Because, in other words, he's saying, you're not really doing it. And he makes this real clear. Okay, so we're going to get into some, again, he's digging a hole for me. He's writing to this whole body saying, some of you are, but some of you aren't, so let's address what's going on. And so he kind of subtly, remember, he's not pounding away at them like he's angry. He's coming to them as a friend. He says in verse 11, make it your goal to live a quiet life. Now, that word quiet for us in our language is a little misleading. It sounds like he's saying, talk softly. It sounds like he's saying, don't, uh, you know, don't, don't be loud, uh, be restful, be peaceful. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, make it your goal, make it your ambition that your life does not intrude upon someone else's life in this church in this gathering of believers in Thessalonica. He's saying, don't become a burden to somebody else close to you in this, what he's calling this family, this new forming family. He's saying, don't become a burden when you are capable of working. Don't disrupt someone else's life when you don't have to. So very plainly, now he's not, he's not talking about people who have retired, people, this is not, he's talking about people who should be working and are not. And he says to them, this is what he's saying, go get a job. Don't take advantage of somebody else. And then he uses this phrase, minding your own business. And again, he's not saying, he's not saying, uh -uh, get your nose out of my business, go mind your own business. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to get busy about taking care of your business, your business. He's saying, get busy in your business. You be all up in your business. Minding your own business. And then he says, and working with your hands. In other words, he's saying, provide for your needs. Just as we instructed you 
before. In other words, he said, we've already talked about this. The first three weeks I was with you. And he's saying, I'm just reminding you, get busy about your business. Don't make your life, when you should be working, a burden to somebody else. Because again, Paul is associating these things with foundational things. He's saying, this is the getting started with Jesus three-week training program. And this is what he's included. He reminds this church, and I think it's a reminder for us. It's a reminder for me. He says, I want you to follow these commands that have been given to us by Jesus. And it's going to do more than just impact your life. Listen to this, verse 12. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend upon others. And that's how he ends this section. Now, as we wrap this up today, I, I like it when things are very, very clear. It helps me. So let's make this very clear as we wrap this up this morning. So far, what we've learned in two weeks, Paul has given us five parts of this foundation, all right, that he spent three weeks building five parts of this foundation there's going to be more to come, but here are the first five parts. This process of what would be described as sanctification. And he reminds us this only happens through God's Holy Spirit. This is not coming from me making my life better. It happens through God's Spirit. You can't force it. You can't fake it long term. You can force it temporary. You can force it for a little while, but not long term. So for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, as blood-bought followers of Jesus, he's calling us to be different. And this is so important. We don't flaunt it by doing this, and we don't flaunt it with a bullhorn, and we don't flaunt it with a picket sign. We're just called to live and love differently. But we don't run from that. Even though we don't flaunt it, we don't run from it. And here's the first part of that foundation. Foundation number one. Live, and this was what we talked about last week. Live in such a way that we know Jesus is coming again, and he could any day. And then to anyone that, follow, that does not follow Jesus, that's weird. That is weird to them. But then if we do that, when we live that way, it's amazing what God's Spirit begins to do inside of our lives. And we talked about this last week. Because then, through God's Spirit, our decisions and our interactions with people uh, have us living in such a way that God nods in agreement because that decision, that facial expression, those word choices, they are worthy of His kingdom. They reflect His glory not mine. And again, they don't originate with me. That only comes from God. If I ever do anything good, Harley didn't come up with it. And that's weird. And that will get you laughed at. And that will get you shunned. 
But all of that doesn't come with a picket sign. It doesn't come with a bullhorn. It comes with loving kindness as you live in this world. But as blood-bought, spirit-led followers of Jesus, we are different. And we don't flaunt it, but we don't run from it. Foundation part four. Oh, I missed part three. Part three, and even though this does not jive with our culture, Scripture teaches that all sexual thoughts and all sexual behaviors only belong in a God-designed marriage. Again, for our culture, that is weird. For our culture, that will get you laughed at. For our culture, that could get you shunned. But as blood-bought, spirit-led followers of Jesus, we are different. Only because of God's Spirit beginning to change these things in our lives. And we don't flaunt it, but we don't run from it. So, part four. Part four is this. And everyone who is able, get busy with your own work and meeting your own needs so you're not intruding on the life of someone else. Let me make a point here. Depending on how your home is structured, how the family unit in which you live is structured, he's not saying that everyone has to go get a paying job. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you be at work in the home, in the environment, in the family that is created in your family, you be at work. You be adding, bringing something to the table in your family as you have it structured. In your family unit as you have it structured, bring something to the table. Don't be the one intruding on their life. Everybody brings something to the table in the family structure. For some, that is going to be a job, a nine-to-five job. For others, it is going to be taking care of managing the household. I don't, I don't, I, I, this is not a message, a teaching on what he's saying. Everybody brings something to the table. Don't make your life a burden. Let's see. Because he said, when we do this, then he says, it reminds us in verse 12, then the people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. And then here's part five of the foundation. This process is called sanctification and it only happens through the direction of God's spirit. You can't force it. You can't fake it long-term. We can for a while, but not for the long-term. So, that's what he has for us. Those are five really big foundational things. He says, let's get all these in our life. And it only happens as God's spirit comes and makes that change in our lives. And he says, all of this, it's not for your glory. It's not so that people look at you and they say, wow, you're doing so good. 
And I would say, it's not for me. For people to look at me and say, wow, he's doing so good. It's because when people know me, they know there's no way. There's no way that's Harley. It brings glory to God every time. Let's pray.